Great to see you this morning. Hey, get your Bibles out and uh, let's jump right on into God's Word. Turn with me to John chapter 11. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, John chapter 11. We're still in our series, Jesus. I got a question. And uh, today we're going to really lean into one of the most difficult questions uh, that any of us face, really. And we all face it. We all come to seasons of life where we ask this question, and that is simply this, Jesus, how can I find hope in suffering? How can I find hope uh, in suffering? And so let's just jump right on into it. John chapter 11, uh, beginning at verse 1. If you're with me, say amen. amen. This is the word of God. Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, The village of Mary and his sister Martha, Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair, and it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now stop right here for just a minute. The the story really begins with a family in crisis. And the truth of the matter is that all of us go through seasons of crisis. You are either in a crisis now, you just came out of a crisis, or guess what? You are headed into a crisis. And we've seen a lot of that around us. We've seen uh, in in Western Europe, Eastern Europe, we see a lot of crisis happening on our newsfeed every day. We, We see a lot of crisis in West Texas with the fires that came through these last couple of weeks. We've seen crisis with tornadoes that have destroyed the homes and communities. So we, we, we understand what crisis is. In fact, the, the high probability is that maybe, I could even say the majority of people here today are facing some level and some kind of crisis. And so how do we respond to that? This is a family that's in crisis. This is a family that was special to Jesus. Lazarus, Martha, and Mary were siblings. They were adult siblings. We have no record that they ever got married. They lived together, and they were very dear to Jesus. They lived in Bethany, which was just outside, a couple miles outside of Jerusalem. And so every time Jesus would come into Jerusalem, he would always stay with them. They ate multiple meals together. They spent lots of nights together. They, I'm sure they had a lot of laughter. They, they, they loved each other deeply. They loved each other very, very much. I guess you could say this was Jesus' second family, if he had one. It was Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And then Lazarus becomes sick. Jesus is gone. Jesus is out. We know by the end of of chapter 10 that Jesus is is hanging out around the north part of the Dead Sea. Uh, Things are very tense around Jerusalem. He's kind of giving some distance there. But Lazarus is sick, and so they send a message to Jesus, that the one you love, I love how that's worded, the one that you love is sick. And what they expected was for Jesus to respond how you would expect someone who loves them, right? To, To come immediately, but Jesus doesn't respond quite that way. In fact, look at verse four. It says, when Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So, 
When he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now, that's not really what we would expect, right, for him to stay two more days. It'd be kind of like you calling up 911, and they'll say, uh, we hear your emergency. We'll try to get there in a couple of days, All right? That's probably not what you want to hear. We, we want them to respond now. We're on the way. We'll be there momentarily. And, and I'm sure that that's what they expected of Jesus, right? Lazarus is sick. We wouldn't be bothering you if it wasn't serious. I mean, he is really sick. He's to the point of death. And we're trying to keep him alive as best we can until Jesus gets here because he's our only hope. And Jesus delays. Jesus doesn't come. Now, why in the world would Jesus do that? Why would he delay when he knew the people he loved him needed him so desperately? Why would Jesus delay? You know, you may be asking that same question. Maybe you are uh, praying right now for a miracle. You're praying for God to intervene in this health situation. You're praying for God to intervene and restore this relationship. You're praying for God to intervene and bring this wayward child back to God. You're, you're praying for something and you've been praying and praying and praying and praying and, and God has not intervened yet. And you, you're probably saying to yourself, God, why don't, why don't you respond? I love you and I, I believe that you love me, but Lord, I'm not getting anything from you. Why are you not responding. I think we all go through these seasons of wonder. Does God care? Does God love me? You know, there's an old argument about suffering, and it goes kind of like this. If there is suffering in the world, then that either means that God is all-powerful, and he could change it, but he's not loving. That's why he doesn't change it, and that's why we have suffering. Or we have suffering in the world, and God is loving but he is not powerful. He doesn't have the ability to change it. He'd, he would like to if he could, but he can't. And that's why we have suffering. Either God is all, all powerful or he is all loving, but he cannot be both and there be suffering. That's the argument. But here you have the situation where there is suffering, Lazarus, and Jesus is all powerful. He's, he's healed multiple people by this point. He's late in Jesus' ministry. He's healed multiple people, so he's shown he's got the power to heal. And it says very directly that he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus deeply. Yeah, so he's all-powerful and he's all-loving, and yet there is still suffering. How do you explain that? And the only way that we can possibly understand that is there's a clue in verse 4. You see it? It's in verse 4. There's a clue. When Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick, he says that the sickness will not ultimately end in death, but in the glory of God and in the lifting up of the Son of God. In other words, what this means is that Jesus had a bigger picture in mind than even what Lazarus understood, even what his sister Mary and Martha understood, that God sees a bigger picture than you and I understand. Can we agree with that? Isaiah 55, his, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are greater than our thoughts. That Jesus sees at a wider lens than you and I see, and he sees a bigger picture, and he's much wiser than we are. And what does not make any sense to us makes perfect sense to him. And that certainly was the case here. And so as he delays for two more days, uh, the inevitable happens. The worst case scenario happens. Their worst nightmare comes true. Their brother, Lazarus, dies. He dies. And after his death, Jesus tells his men, hey, it's time for us to go to Bethany. And so Jesus is now entering into 
the town to encounter a family that is in trauma. I've done this as a pastor many times. I get the phone call, a death has happened. I drive to the house. I take a deep breath in the car before I go in uh, to the house and knock on the door. You step in and you immediately feel the overwhelming presence of grief and sorrow. And, And what I know is this, that anytime you walk into a family that's going through a crisis like that, everyone responds differently. You have somebody that's angry, somebody that's quiet, someone that's unemotional in the moment. You, everyone, if somebody's busy, I mean, everybody's kind of dealing with it in their own way. And that's what is happening here. Jesus is going to step into this family that's hurting, and he's going to deal with the individuals in this family in their own unique way. But what we're going to learn in this story is how you can find hope and peace and comfort, even in your worst moments, even in your seasons of suffering. So I want you to take, uh, if you're taking notes, just jot this first thought down, okay? The first one is this, we find hope in Jesus' promises. Run your finger down to verse 17. Hope in Jesus' promises. Verse 17, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days, Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to, to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Martha comes out to meet Jesus on the road. I mean, he hadn't even been in town yet. And uh, he could probably tell the way she's walking to him, her pace, her body language, that she is in pain. And the first thing out of her mouth, Lord, if you'd have been here, if you'd have been here, he would not have died. Behind that statement is a question. Where were you? Where were you? We needed you. We thought you loved us. We thought you cared about us. And we needed you. And we said word, and you didn't come. Where were you? Why did you let this happen to us? You know, I think all of us, if we're honest, we have, we've asked these why questions before, haven't we? God, why? Why did this happen to me? Don't, don't you know we love you and we've been trying to serve you and then, God, this, this is happening in my life? We, we all have asked these why questions. We've all experienced that in our life to some degree. And, and by the way, when you ask a why question, you're not alone. Uh, most people, in fact, certainly people in the scripture asked it over and over and over again. You can't read the Psalms without Why? I love what Habakkuk said. Habakkuk, he's one of those guys in the Old Testament you don't hear a whole lot about. Habakkuk's this guy. He said, I see the righteous people getting thrown in the dirt, and I see the godless people getting promotions, and I want to know why. And in Habakkuk chapter 2, he says this, I will climb up to my watchtower and stand in my guard, and there I will wait to see what the Lord says, and how he will answer my complaint. God, you, you got to answer to me. For this one, right? You've got to answer. I want to know why. We've been there, haven't we? 
Can I just tell you something as your pastor who loves you deeply? All right, so I'm just coming close to you now, okay? You're probably never gonna get the answers to the why that you're looking for this side of heaven. In fact, I can't find a single place in the Bible when Habakkuk or Job or anybody else asked why that God said, well, you know, I really do, you know, I really do owe you an answer, an explanation. I'm so sorry that I allowed this to happen. I just don't see it. Maybe in heaven we'll get an answer to it. Maybe in heaven we won't care. But I don't see us getting the answers to the why questions this side of heaven. Jesus said in John 16, in this world you will have what? Trouble. Job said in, in Job 5 verse 7, he said, people are born for trouble as readily as the sparks fly up from a fire. We're born for trouble. Why is that? Why do we suffer? So let me give you very quickly, just a couple of minutes here, just a little subsection here, uh, a theology of suffering, right? First, first point, theology of suffering is that we live in a sinful world. We live in a world that is polluted by sin. The world is not as God created it to be. God created it good. Every time he had to go through a step of creation, he said, it's good, it's good, it's good. But now, it's not good. Why? Because when Adam sinned, it's like, uh, it's like sewage went pouring into the river, right? And it, and it polluted all of creation. Let me, let me try to illustrate this. Uh, several years ago, many, many years ago, my, my youngest daughter brought home a little baggie uh, with a water and a fish in it, a goldfish in it that she had got from a fall festival, all right? Little goldfish. I mean, he was like that big. And so we called him tiny because he was so little. And over and under, I thought Tiny would probably live about three days, okay? This fish lived seven years. <laughs> I have no idea. By sheer force of will, he lived seven years. And no lie. And so we put Tiny in this little fishbowl, right? We got this little fishbowl, and I'm not going to a lot of expense because I don't think Tiny's going to be around very long. So we throw a little gravel in there, a little palm tree in there. We put some distilled water. We drop him in there. He's all good, right? That's all Tiny needs. But, but Tiny just kind of kept living. And I never had a fish before, so I don't really know how this thing works. I don't put like any, like a... Uh, uh, aerator in there, you know, and pumping. No, no, no. We just drop him in. And so what we notice is that after about a week or two weeks, three weeks maybe in there, that water starts getting really murky. Like, almost like, where's Tiny? Is Tiny in there? You know, I mean, really murky. And then the odor, right? I mean, it just stinks to high heaven. Now, I know there's a problem with times like sucking air out of the top. You know, we've got to do something about this. Now, there, there's, there's no hope for Tiny unless I do something to fix that problem. Now, here's the deal. You said, Craig, what does this have to do with theology of suffering? This is, this is how God created the world. God created with the pure, clean water, right? It was clear. It was a clean tank. That's how God made it. It was good. But because sin has come in the world through Adam's sin, it has come now through us. His blood runs through our veins. We are sinners at the core. Uh, even the creation groans, Romans 8 says, under the effect and the heavy load of our sin, crying out for God to do something. We live now in a murky tank of sin. And with it comes tragedy and disease and death and heartache and, and, and fires and tornadoes 
and, and every imaginable evil. This is the world in which we live. Second thing about the theology of suffering is this, that it is in that sinful world that Christ came. That Jesus came out of heaven and stepped into our murky fish tank of sin and Jesus did not hold suffering at arm's length. He didn't say, well, I'm, I'm the perfect one, I'm the holy one, I'm the innocent one, and I, I'm gonna keep suffering at arm's length. You're gonna deal with suffering, but I'm not. No, no, he came and embraced our suffering and especially embracing it on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus Christ endured our suffering. He suffered our sin debt on the cross, even the very wrath of God on our behalf. So Jesus did not withhold suffering. He embraced suffering fully and completely. He drank the dregs of it. And the Bible says he was buried on three days. Three days later, he rose again from the dead, conquering sin and death and the grave. And because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we have confidence that we will rise with him, those who are in Christ. In fact, the Bible goes on to tell us that when a believer dies, that immediately his spirit goes to be with Christ in heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul said in, in Philippians 1, he goes, I don't know, man, I, I'm, I'm, it's a toss-up for me. I want to stay here, and I want to be with you guys and encourage you, but boy, I sure would like to go be with Jesus. So our spirit goes to be with Christ. But the Bible also tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4 that when Christ comes at the, at the shout of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, when Christ comes and he appears, that the dead in Christ will rise first. That's called a bodily resurrection. And we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We'll be transformed. We'll put off our immortality and take, on mort uh, take off our, our mortality and put on immortality. And we will have a new body and we will Will be forever with the Lord. That is the Christian hope. The, the, yes, we live in a sin-soaked world, but Christ came in and he suffered our behalf and conquered the grave. And that's not it. There's one more part to this uh, theology of suffering, and that is that ultimately uh, Christ is going to make all things new. That finally, one day, he's going to make all things new. Uh, just listen to these words. I'm not going to put it on the screen. Just listen to it. Revelation chapter 21, when I, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone, and I saw the holy city and new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people, and he will live with them. And they will be his people. God himself will be with them. And he will wipe every tear from their eye. And there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, or pain. All these things are gone forever. Can somebody say amen to that? And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. I guess what I'm trying to say is eventually he's going to clean out the fishbowl. And he's going to make it all new again, back to the way it was before. Back to being good as God created the world to be. This is the Christian hope. 
And so this is the promises. These are the promises that echo throughout the scripture, right? That, that, that we have sinned and we suffer under the weight of this sinfulness, but, but, but Christ came to redeem us. And, and, and for every believer in Christ, he goes to be with the Lord immediately, but there's a bodily resurrection coming. And one day he's, gonna, he's just gonna make it all new again. This is the Christian hope. And I believe this is, this is really what Jesus is leaning into when he talks to Martha. Martha comes up and she says, Jesus, if you were here, my brother would not have died. And look at what Jesus says to her in verse 23. He said, your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Underline that. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Jesus said, listen, Martha, I've made some promises. And um, I am the resurrection and life. Here's the question, do you believe this? I tell you what, there's nothing that puts our faith to the test more than when we go through suffering. Isn't it true? You really know what you believe at that point. And when everything is shaky ground, the only place you can plant your feet is on the promises of God. You say, no matter what happens, I know what I believe. I know in whom I believe. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I believe that he conquered sin and death. I believe that he's coming again, and I will be with him. And one day, all that we see as this nightmare will be replaced and restored and renewed again. And what was lost will be restored, and what is broken will be repaired. And what, is, um, what pain I suffer today will be swallowed up in victory those are the promises of God. Listen, if you're in a season of suffering, you have to take your stand on the promises of God. You have to say, you know, I really believe these promises to be true. I find hope in them. Second thing I want you to jot down is this. How do we find hope? We find hope in Jesus' presence. Look at verse 28. He said, having said this, he went, uh, she went back and called her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. And as soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. And Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. And they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. But as soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. You know, Mary is lagging behind. I always think that of, of Mary as the one that was kind of the closest to Jesus. You know, Martha's the busy one. You remember back the story when Jesus was hanging out there at house one time. Martha's busy. She's cooking. Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha gets upset. Jesus, tell Mary to get off her tail and come in here and help me out. And uh, Jesus says, hold on, Martha. You know, you're wound up about a lot of things. That's the Etheridge paraphrase. You're wound up about a lot. You're pretty strong, tight, but 
but Mary has chosen the right thing. I always think of Mary as the emotional one. Later on, she's going to anoint Jesus for you know over his head and his feet, and so she's she's close to Jesus. But in the trial, you would have thought she would be the first one to run out to Jesus, but she's not. And you know, I've found that a lot of people, when they go through a crisis, do that. They push Jesus away. That may be you. I mean, you, you, you don't want to go to church, man. You don't want to be with God's people. You don't want to open your Bible. You don't want to pray. You don't want to do any of that be, because you're just hurting. And there's no desire for worship. There's no desire to be with God, no desire to serve God because you're just, you're just hurting. That was Mary. And finally, Mary comes at Jesus' request and she just falls at his feet, collapses there and, and, in tears, and she just says, Lord. I, I think maybe when Martha said that was, if you had been here, I, I think when Mary said it, she was just with her face to the ground, Lord, if you'd been here. My brother wouldn't have died. And I want you to notice how Jesus treats her so differently Look at what he says in verse 33. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. And Jesus wept. Jesus wept. If you want to start scripture memory, that's a great verse to start with. (laughs) Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. But really, no two words have deeper meaning than those two. Why? Because these two words show the depth of his love for Mary. When he saw her weeping, when he saw the effects of sin and the grief and separation that it brings, when he saw all those weeping around her, Jesus himself was overcome with grief and sorrow and compassion, and he wept. Listen, Jesus is not indifferent to your tears. He's not indifferent. He's not up there saying, well, when you dry it up, then we'll we'll move forward. Are you done yet? He's not doing that. Jesus is moving toward you in your tears. He weeps with you. He intercedes for you, the scripture says. You know, I'm about to say something that's a spoiler alert, so if you don't want to hear this, plug your ears. Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead, all right? Now listen, it's going to happen quickly. So her sorrow is at best temporary, like really temporary. I mean, you would almost expect Jesus to go, hey, don't worry about it. I'm about to solve this problem. Try it out. But he doesn't. He enters into it. And I think what's comforting to me about that is the fact that in the scheme of eternity, all our suffering is temporary, is it not? All of our suffering in the scheme of eternity is very short around the corner. He's going to fix it anyway. But yet in our tears, Jesus meets us there and weeps with us there. And Jesus gave Mary something very beautiful, and that is called the ministry of presence. That Jesus sat with her and wept with her. And my friends, the times when I have been in the deepest grief and sorrow. The only thing that truly comforted my heart, apart from the promises of God that I stand on, is the present comforting presence of his Holy Spirit, knowing that Jesus is with me 
and weeps with me and meets me in it. I see this all the time in our own church. I'll hear of a tragedy that's befallen one of our church family members and then uh, I'll go by and there's uh, a connect group that's just, just overtaken this house, right? Somebody's doing the laundry. Somebody's mowing the grass. Somebody's you know, bringing in meals. Somebody's sitting in the living room uh, praying. Somebody's sitting and crying. And it's a beautiful thing. It's the beauty of the body of Christ that ministry of presence. Sometimes people don't need a good theological reason for why this happens. They just need you to cry with them and to say, I love you and I'm grieving with you. That's why in Romans 12, it says to to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. And that's what Jesus does for us. If you want to find hope in suffering, you find it in the promises of God, what we believe in, but you also find it in the present ministry and compassion of Jesus that we experience personally through his spirit and through his people. Let me give you one more because our time is running away from us here. Want to find hope, you find it also in in, in Jesus' power. Jesus' power. Look at verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. And Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? I want you to underline the phrase deeply moved there. That phrase deeply moved doesn't mean what you think it means. Most of us, when we read this passage, and I'm, me included, we, we think what deeply moved means that he's in tears, right? Because we just read that he's weeping. And so we think he comes to the grave and he's just overcome with tears and emotion and sorrow. But that's not what the word means. In fact, it may shock you what the word actually means. The word deeply moved here literally means, get this, to snort in anger. To snort in anger. In other words, when Jesus finally comes to the grave, he is replacing his sorrow with this righteous anger against what sin has done to us and and the sorrow that it brings and the hardship that it brings. This is the anger of a prize fighter who steps into the ring and he's about to face off man's great enemy, sin and death and the grave. And here is Jesus saying, he says, get the stone away. I mean, Jesus is serious now. This is serious. This is manly Jesus, all right? You know, this is not tender Jesus. This is Jesus the king. And he says, move the stone away. And of course, Martha's over there. Wait, Jesus, you know, it's been four days. It's going to smell really bad. In fact, in the King James Version, it says, he stinketh. If you, if you ever been around a seventh grade boy, you know what exactly what stinketh means, right? He stinketh, right? And uh, Jesus, Jesus, we'll just look at what he says here. He, he says, get the stone away. And, and she says, uh, look at verse 40, 41. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me. But because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. And after he said these, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips 
and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Right, now, now, I want you to understand this. Only Jesus could, could do that, right? Only Jesus could raise Lazarus from the dead. Uh, he couldn't, Lazarus couldn't do it. Uh, the, the people couldn't do it. The, the religious leaders couldn't do it. Certainly his family couldn't do it. Only Jesus could do this. Only, listen, think about it, how Lazarus' life has changed, all right? After this, Lazarus is, from this point forward, the resurrection guy, right? And he can't go to anything without, without somebody going, oh, that's the dude, right? That's the, that's the guy. You know, everybody's wanting selfies with Lazarus, right? Everybody's wanting to hang out with Lazarus. Lazarus, tell the story again. Come over and tell us again how that happened and what, was, what were you feeling, Lazarus? What was it like on the other side, Lazarus? I mean, everywhere he goes, he is branded forever with this testimony. He was the guy that was raised to life. Jesus, listen to me, Jesus took a tragedy and turned it into a testimony. That's the power of Jesus Christ. That he can take your tragedy, as awful as it is, and as horrible as it is, and he can turn it by his power and make it a testimony that God can use to glorify himself and lift up Jesus and encourage others that are going through the same thing. This room is filled with tragedies turned to testimonies. This room is filled with them. Listen, some of you, hear me. I'm going to land the plane really fast, all right? So hear me. Some of you are bound up because of the tragedy that you face. Like Lazarus, you are bound. You are bound in your grief. You are bound in your hurt. You are bound in your anger. You are bound in your resentment. And you cannot walk with God, and you cannot praise God, and you cannot serve God because you are still bound up in what has happened to you. But Jesus came to free you from that so that you can be free to walk in the power of God and to say, no matter what has happened in my past, I now have a testimony that I can use to glorify God. It's time to come out of the grave for some of you. It is time to leave the suffering behind you, to leave the, the heartache behind you, to leave the grief behind you, and to walk with God and walk in the testimony that God has given you. Jesus has the power to do that. I want you to bow your head with me for just a moment. You may be here today and you may be going through a tremendous amount of suffering. You say, Pastor, you have no idea what I'm going through and you're probably right. But I do know this, that because of Jesus, you can have hope today. You can stand on his promises that Jesus is the resurrection and the life and no matter what you have endured, that Jesus one day is gonna make it all right again. And you can stand on that. You can experience the presence of Jesus' spirit in your life, his comfort. He can meet you in that dark place, in that lonely place of tears and remind you how much he loves you. And you can experience the power of Jesus to take your tragedy, 
and in its place give you a testimony that you can use to glorify God. Father, I pray that right now, Lord, I, I pray that you would comfort those that are your own, people that you love, that are maybe really struggling today. Lord Jesus, meet us now. Lord Jesus, minister to our hearts today. Speak your peace and your comfort and your grace over us, Lord. Help us draw near to you even now.